Wow, good afternoon. Well, when I arrived here, they were thinking, you know, are you okay with the heat here in Dallas? Thinking that I came from New York. Because everyone's trying to rationalize, you know, why you live here. It's true. The first thing you hear, as soon as you, just like in LA, as soon as you get on the plane, so how cold was it in New York? You know, they want to know. I actually just got back from a real oven from um, Fort Lauderdale did a program there and some of the people asked me so when are you going back to New York and I told them well first I've got to go to Dallas and do a program there and some of the Jewish people asked me well tell me something what are you doing a program on and I said Satan and they were shocked <laughs> absolutely shocked um, they were shocked because they said you mean Jews believe in Satan <laughs> I said I, I won't exactly phrase it that Satan, of course, plays a role in the Jewish faith. I was speaking in Philadelphia for Russian Jews, and you know that the Russian Jewish community is being evangelized in this country in a very serious way. And I spoke for about a hundred Russian Jews who had come to the United States who lived there, and we're at the Jewish Community Center. Did a really wonderful program for them. And after the lecture, I took questions, so this elderly Russian fellow came over to me, he was all excited. I mean, he really liked me. He patted me over the back. I thought he'd be in the hospital, you know. He, you know, he was very excited about me being there. And he said, Rabbi Singh, I just want you to know what you're doing to fight the missionaries, exposing their lives. I think it's wonderful showing why these groups from Jews for Jesus are teaching nothing but falsehood. I think it's a great thing. By the way, I'm an atheist. <laughs> and I looked at him and I was... Hey, let me see if I understand this correctly. You're proud of me that I'm exposing the lies of the missionaries and you're an atheist? Who's a bigger liar? You know, if you don't believe in God, then the greatest lie of all is that Torah that stands in that ark. Why kiss it when it comes down? I asked him his name and I took out a checkbook and I wrote out a check to him for $1,000. Showing him the check in my hand, I said to him, you know, I'll give this to you on one condition. There's a sanctuary here in the building and you'll come with me into the sanctuary and take out the Torah and just throw it on the floor and spit on it. I'll give it to you. And he said, no, I'd never do it. And I said, why not? If you're an atheist, why not? I said to him, some atheist you are. <laughs> you see, the Bible says that only a fool says in his heart there is no God. That's what scripture says at Psalm 14, verse 1. What does that mean, only the fool says in his heart there is no God? Usually, when you speak, you speak with your lips, not with your heart. Oh yes, many people will say there is no God. They'll say it because they're angry. They'll say it for a variety of reasons. But if you truly believe in your heart there is no God, you are indeed a fool. I told him I'd throw down, I don't know, what the, the, the Bhagavad Gita for free. You won't throw it down? And he smiled at me. Some atheist he was. If we just look at the mentions of Satan in the Jewish scriptures where Satan is a proper noun, not just the one who's an obstacle, is mentioned very few times, just a handful of times. Yet in the New Testament, it's mentioned over a hundred times. Satan plays an all-important role in Christianity. For Christianity, you need to understand that Satan is a very special being. He was the highest of all the angels, and he went into rebellion against God. His name is Lucifer. And he not only went into rebellion against God and he turned his back on God and became the opposer of God, but he took other angels which with him, which are called demons. 
and the work of Satan it goes on today and he is the opposer of Jesus' work God didn't create Satan evil God couldn't create anything evil God is the author of righteousness and perfection how could God create something that's evil Revelations 20 tells us that indeed what will happen is when Jesus comes, he's going to take Satan. Satan is going to be taken and be bound up and cast into a bottomless pit for a thousand years, for a millennia. And then there'll be the final war between Jesus and Satan. Satan is going to be obliterated entirely into fire. This is the concept of Satan. Now, in Judaism, there is a a certain revulsion that Jews have to Satan for a number of reasons, but primarily, as you'll see later on this afternoon in the lecture, Satan is going to have a devastating effect for the Jewish people who live in Europe. You can't do anything good, miss. You can go to your temple and you can pray. I mean, you can beat your breast, you can fast, you can ask God for forgiveness, you can try to merit your own salvation, but you can't merit your own salvation. You're totally depraved. You are the, the servant of the God of this world. Satan is the one that's in control. He is the master. Try all you want to. You know, I know that those prayers that you say in your temple, they're holy. They are. Most of them come from the Bible. I'm aware of that. But you don't, you can't save yourself. We're all sinners. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There isn't a righteous man on the sun that does that which is good, yet sinneth not. Everybody is a sinner. Everybody is a loser. You can't, by your own works, make it to heaven. You can't do it. You can want it. You know, it's like going into the store and the item costs a dollar and all you have is 50 cents. And the reason you can't do it is because Satan is the power of this world. He's the one that's in charge. His name is Lucifer, and he's a rebeller against God. He is the enemy of God, and therefore the enemy of Jesus. And therefore, there is no other road to salvation but by the cross, but by the unblemished lamb, but by the blood of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. He is the only boat off this deserted island. Totally depraved, of course... That's a central theme in Christendom. It's a part of Tulip. It's a part of that essential theology that so many Christians believe. You are totally praying. You can do nothing of your own. And therefore, you are at the whim of Satan's desire. Of course, if that's the case, the question becomes then, how could you even choose Jesus? How could you even make that decision to be a Christian? If we take that idea to its full logical conclusion that mankind has been infected with Satan as a, role, as a result of the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, if this is the case, then how could you keep that one Christian commandment to believe in Jesus, to choose Jesus in your life? And the answer is, you can't. You can't choose Jesus. You can't keep that one commandment that will save you. Remember, according to Christendom, there is no salvation outside of that cross. Mark 16, 16 explicitly says... If you believeth and you're baptized, you're saved. And if you believeth not, you're damned. But the question is, how can I make that choice if I'm totally depraved? If no one wants the gospel, no one, no not one, as Romans 3.10 says, then how is that the case? Of course, Romans 3.10 is a misquote of Psalm 14. Paul is very careful never to quote the verse, verse of Psalm 14, which we quoted just a little earlier. So he simply starts quoting verse 2 and 3. No one wants the truth, no, not one. But it's actually not speaking about everyone there. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And right afterward in verse 4 it says, they eat my people as if they're bread. But then how do you choose Jesus? That's where predestination comes in.
That's where First Peter chapter 1 verse 20 tells us that is indeed before the foundation of the earth was set into place, it was already decided who would be saved and therefore who would go to hell. And if you were predetermined, if you were predestined for salvation, first Ephesians chapter 1, then you're going to find the gospel irresistible, as Augustine and Calvin tell us. And if you're going, if you're predestined for hell, well, sir, you're just wasting your time. <laughs> They're so sensitive here in Dallas. I didn't mean to be personally, only for the lecture. She's the one, okay. And look what happens to those mighty scriptures. Look what happens to that biblical faith of Judaism when you alter just one piece. I remember when I was a little boy, I used to be so excited about taking things apart and putting them back together. I used to do that with everything. <laughs> One time, my mother made the fatal mistake of hiring a new babysitter. <laughs> I knew exactly what to do. <laughs> as soon as she sat down on the couch there in front of the TV, the work went in the laundry room, and I began to go to work taking apart the washing machine. <laughs> I was very excited. I even wanted to put it back together, and it went together. The big stuff went together. It was those little things. I had no idea where they went. So I said, probably, hopefully, it's not very important. It's probably for the cigarette lighter and the washing machine. I had no idea what it went. So you just take those five things that are still there that you just can't figure out where they went and so on, and you hope that they have no integral part until your mother is doing the laundry the next day. Suddenly, wood is flying all over the place. It's a... You see what happens? You can't take a system and take out one piece without altering the whole system. When we ask ourselves, well, what is Satan's role in the Jewish faith? The place we need to look in the Bible. And really, we'd, we'd want to look at the very first place in the Bible for what does God have to say? What does God have to say about Satan's role? And the first time Satan is alluded to in Scripture, and <coughs> immediately after this, sin, the sin that according to Christianity poisoned the soul of mankind remember that happens in Genesis 3 that's where the curse takes place right afterwards the almighty foreknew that there would be a religion a dualistic religion that claims that Satan is all powerful and you cannot master over him he's in control, immediately he comes to reassure us, the almighty, blessed be his name tells us, no, take a look at Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 if you do well, if thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. You can master over Satan if you choose. You can master over this. As a matter of fact, I know I'm going to scare at least three quarters of the audience because probably three quarters of you are Christians or half former Christians Satan in Judaism is actually a blessing without Satan there's no virtue no angel goes into rebellion against God, Satan is God's servant without Satan there is no free will there is no virtue I remember the young man who was going to be converted to the Jewish faith he was a young man who was brought up in a Jewish family uh, was adopted and never went through a conversion and his family called me and asked me to 
took counseling him. It was in New Jersey, in Bergen County. I remember we spent, he didn't want to meet with me, but time and time he finally, he finally agreed to meet with me. And we got together, with, I remember it was a rainy night in, Mon, in Montclair, New Jersey. And we were there till very, very late. And we studied and we got together again. And he left the Christendom that he was in. He was involved in a church in Edison, New Jersey called Faith Fellowship, a well-known church in Edison. And he had decided finally, after studying the Bible, that he wanted to come back to his God and his people. But he would also go through a conversion to the Jewish faith. And he said to me, Rabbi, I have a problem. I was very curious, what was the problem? He said, I have a problem, that is, I love lobster. That's what he said to me. <laughs> Culturally, he was Jewish, let me tell you. <laughs> he said, I love lobster. Now, to me, this is, he said, to me, this is a very big, he says, what am I going to do? I love lobster. To me, there's an enormous surprise that anyone could love lobster. To me, lobster looks like a big cockroach. It's the ugliest... <laughs> It's true. It's true. It's, I never saw something so ugly in my whole life. And Jews, ooh, they love lobster. They eat it. They dip it. They wear special pajamas. To it. I have no idea. They go. They, they put in the butter. They shut up in the crack. They know. They're experts. They know how to do this. I look at this thing. And they serve the whole big this thing there. The whole. They should mash it up. Put it in the salad somewhere so no one sees it. They should. What are you laughing at over here? I can see this section is the lobster presses right over here in this section over here. <laughs> At least if they would, you know, like this. I mean, when I see they bring out the whole dead thing on a plate over there, you know, I, I want to call an undertaker. I mean, this is a... <laughs> so I told him, you're very lucky that you love lobster so much. He was very surprised there, but I was crazy. I said, yeah. I said, after 120 years, when I breathe my last breath and I stand before the Lord of Lord, host of hosts... Is the Almighty going to reward me, Tovia, for not eating lobster? No, not at all. I have no reward for this. Because to me it's disgusting. It's repulsive. But if you're going to say to yourself, I love this lobster, it brings me such pleasure when I eat people go crazy from that. It brings such pleasure. But I love you, Hashem, so much that I'm not going to eat lobster. Oh, do you know what great reward is waiting for you in the world to come? That's what I tell them. It's a great thing. If you love whatever it is over there they eat over there with the shrimp and all that stuff, you have a great reward waiting for you. And I'll say to you that that reward is greatest because not eating lobster mentioned in Leviticus chapter 11 is called a chok. It's that commandment which we have no idea what it means. We have no idea why. Scripture is silent on why we can't eat fish, fins and scales. We don't know why the Bible is silent on it. And therefore, it makes no sense. Yeah, we, I'm sure some of you think, well, we can't eat scavengers. It's not true. And therefore, to say to God, look, I don't understand why. To me, it makes sense that I should eat lobster. It makes me feel good. I enjoy it. But I love you so much, Almighty. I'm going to do this for you. You know what a great reward you have? You know what a great reward you have? I remember, I'll never forget this young man. He was a, a messianic, he got involved in the messianic woman. He became a Christian. And I remember his tread back to Judaism I saw was very difficult. He saw immediately that the Almighty did not want him to be in anything else but a Jew. But he had a lot of resistance. And I asked him, what was this resistance about? Because most Jews who come back from the church become traditional Jews. They don't go to a bankrupt Judaism in a sense. They don't go to a Judaism that lacks a God and a personal relationship with him. But he had resistance. You know what his problem was? 
He was a vegetarian, but not any kind of veggie. He was a big, a vegan, a vegan. I have no idea what he But it's a very religious... These are very firm vegetarians. You know what that is? <laughs> They're very religious people. These are like Hasidic vegetarians. You don't know? You don't know what this is over here, Paul? They wear... I don't know what they do. I would starve to death if I was stuck with such a belief. I... They don't, no, don't eat meat. They don't look at meat. They don't want to see. They don't want to touch. They don't, they won't eat, le- wear leather. They eat leather. They won't even wear leather. They won't, they don't, nothing can be in the shoelaces. They don't wear, no eggs, no fish, no nothing. You can't eat a thing alone, you know. To me, I like a nice steak with a french fry. This is for me very good. I, I eat a salad. I, did I eat something? I have no idea. I wish I could enjoy a good, someone here could tell me how to enjoy a good salad. <laughs> So, so he was so so firm in his vegetarianism that he couldn't put on tefillin. I can see this this section has going to be a lot of trouble here tonight over here. It sort of moves like this. They understand this way, like a wave. It goes fine this side here. This must be Dallas and then Fort Worth and there back there. I don't know. East, I don't know how it works here. Everyone's going to get killed here yet tonight. You couldn't put on to film. You couldn't. Leather. Put on to film. This was a struggle for him. One day he did wrap those leather straps around his arm. Great is his reward, reward in the world to come. Do you understand this? Free will is so central to the Jewish faith. And that's why the Bible says, Scripture says, openly... Look at your handout, that it is God who places good and evil before you. No angel went into rebellion against the Almighty. Oh, no. God put the evil in front of you right after Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11 through 14, where Scripture says it's not too difficult to keep these commandments. It's not too hard. It's not too far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will come down from heaven to give it to us that we may do it. The word is near to you. It's in your heart your mouth that you may do it and then the almighty sets down the salvation program of the biblical faith of judaism take a look at deuteronomy verse chapter 30 verse 15 see i have set before you this day life and good death and evil i god has set before you life and death and you must choose good and immediately in verse 16, immediately begins to tell us how you have good. Right away it tells us, keep my Torah and have a personal relationship with me. Love me. I love you. And in verse 17 says, but if you don't listen to the word and you turn away and worship other God that your fathers did not know, that's crucial. He says, bad. And then in verse 19 it says, I place, look at, you know, I call heaven and earth as witnesses before you. I place life and death, good and evil. You must choose good. But it's God that places it before you. Don't you understand? Judaism has a message for you. God doesn't make junk. Sin is not a person, it's an event. And that event happened yesterday, and yesterday ended last night. Today is a new day. But the idea that God created Satan is openly in the Bible. And as you will see in a moment... Christians have a lot of trouble with this. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, look at your handout again. Isaiah 45, verse 7. Look at the King James. The King James translates this verse correctly. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. 
God created evil so that you can have virtue and a place in the world to come. Do you think the church likes that kind of a verse? It's a disaster. And I'll tell you something. Sometimes I listen to these Christian radio shows. You know, CRI out of California. You know, um, uh, Harold Camping on Family Radio. You know, many of these. This is one of the most common questions that come up over and over again by Christians. I get to hear what's on the mind of a Christian. You know, because I live. I live in Muncie, New York. It's a very Jewish community, you know. But over the years, the work I've done, I, I, it was always so important to me to understand what's in the mind of a Christian. You know, I have never been a Christian. I have never been anything else but a Jew. But it was so important to me when I chose this work because I felt that, that was my purpose here in this world to understand what does a Christian believe. I have never been a Christian. That's not an easy thing to do. It was more than just, well, I'm going to show these scriptures. No, I want to understand what is in the minds of these Christians want a relationship with God. Don't fool yourself. They are spiritual people, by and large, and they sincerely do believe in God. Make no mistake. But the problem for those who stand with a closed mind is they want their Jesus in their God. I want my Jesus. If you're not giving my Jesus, I don't want it. And their minds are sealed closed. For those of them who are willing to open their mind and to listen and understand. See, the disaster for Christians is, and I'll tell you the truth, why do Christians have so much trouble? There are a number of reasons. First of all, how can the Jews be right? I'm not kidding. How can the Jews be right? This is a big issue. Because the whole New Testament is a polemic, a war between the Jewish people and the church. That's what the whole Christian Bible is. It's an absolute war between Jesus and the Gospels and the disciples in the book of Acts. And, of course, Galatians and others between the Jews and these new Christians. The word Christian is not used very much in New Testament, but those who now have chosen Christianity, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews can't be right. But the real disaster is for their understanding is the serious problem that they begin with Jesus and they believe in the Old Testament and I say that as a Christian would say they believe in the Jewish scriptures as a result of believing in Jesus. Do you understand what I just said? That means Jesus comes first. That's the basis of what they believe. Those of you who were brought up as a Christian in this room. And I don't mean that some of you say, well, I wasn't brought up as a Christian. I believed nothing. And then later on, I became a born-again Christian as an adult. I know some of you are thinking this. But when you began, you began with Jesus. And then do you believe in the old Jewish scriptures as a result of believing in Jesus. But you got it all wrong. You should have started with the Jewish scriptures. You should have read from Genesis to Malachi. That's what you should have done first. Because remember... The Jewish scriptures can be true and the Christian scriptures false. The Christian scriptures cannot be true and the Jewish scriptures false. That is impossible. No Christian would tell you alive today that the New Testament could be true and the Old Testament false. That's impossible. Although there was an early heresy that believed that. We won't get into that today. Every Christian would agree that one hour before Jesus was born, who had the truth? The Jews. By the way, technically in Christian theology, it's actually one hour before the cross, not actually one hour before he was born. The Jews. I always love it when they say, how could you Jews be right? 12 million Jews, you know, 1.7 billion Christians. How could so few be so right? You know, I always uh, find that it's very interesting how when they need the numbers so the Catholics will count, everyone is a Christian suddenly. You understand how this works? You know, when they need the big numbers, look how big we are. One third of the world is Christian, right? 
So that means they're carrying the Greek, carrying the Greek Orthodox and the Mormons and the Witnesses and all these groups. And when the number, when they become a liability, when the history of the Catholic Church becomes a liability, and the doctrines of the Witnesses become a liability, and the doctrines of the Mormons become a liability, oh no, they're not real Christians. So they take them when they're good, and they're not good, and we'll get rid of them. Oh, in, out, like a whole thing, in, all right, bring them in, out, go slap them out, you know. What is going on here? <laughs> You can't have it both ways. And they're fully comfortable with the idea that one hour before Jesus was born, the Jews had the truth, and the Zoroastrians, and the Hindus, and the Buddhists, and all these groups, Mithraism, all these groups are wrong. That's okay, even though we were a tiny number then. Much fewer Jews then than we are now. Then we were, whatever, 4 million Jews. Today we're 12. Had it not been for the Holocaust, we'd be 18. We have 1.9 children, so we don't go anywhere. But if you... Start with the Jewish Christians, and I beg every Christian to do this. I want to speak to the Christians in this room here today. Those of you who even have said to yourself, you know what, maybe I want to be a Jew. I want to say this to you, and I want to just speak to you right now. Tonight, go home and pray. Pray that God will be chonin lodum das, he would give you wisdom. Pray for that. And pray that your eyes will be clear. And read the Jewish scriptures with an open mind. Ask yourself this question. If a Martian could come down from outer space and we all he knew is understood Hebrew and we gave him a Tanakh, a Jewish scriptures, and he read from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Malachi or Second Chronicles, however you order it, would he walk away and say, you know what, I believe in one God, but within that one God there are three persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they're all of the same substance? Ask yourself, honestly, would a Martian make that conclusion? When I say Martian, that means someone who's not affected by any culture, who has no history. Ask yourself honestly, would I conclude, ask yourself if a Martian read from Genesis to Malachi in the original Hebrew, and then turned to him and say, has the Messiah come yet? What would he say? Ask yourself, ask yourself honestly, and pray. But the problem is you start with Jesus, and then as a result of Jesus, you believe in the Jewish scriptures, and then work in Jesus into every scripture in our precious writings. You understand how foolish this is? It's not, a, it's not that Christians mean bad. It's just that's how it's given to them. That's how they are told to understand it. The NIV doesn't like this idea that God created evil. That's a problem. So if you open the NIV and look up Isaiah 45, verse 7, the same verse in an NIV, look how it reads on the right side. I form the light and create the darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. Disaster? That's typhoons and hurricanes. What the heck is going on here? <laughs> what did you do with my Bible? How did you touch it? The church did to our texts what they did to our people. They violated it. See, the problem is that Christianity started out in a, from a emerged out of a Jewish crucible. It did. But the disaster is that when the Greek and Roman mind rather than the Hebrew mind dominated the church, it spelled disaster for its theology and that theological catastrophe the church has never recovered from. Just look at the book of Job. Look at the book of Job. That's where Satan is most prominent. Satan comes to the Almighty and says to him, comes with all the other angels and says to him, look at this fellow named Job. And God is very proud of Job. Very proud of Job. 
Because Job was a righteous servant. Job followed the Almighty, His commandments. And Job said, of course He does. But look at him. Look at the wealth that he's amassed. Look at the pleasures that he enjoys. Look at the families that he's brought up. Look at the wife that he's married. Look at what he has. But if these, th- these things were only taken from him, how certainly would he turn his back on you? And God tells Satan, this is what you can do, and this is what you can't do. And Satan is a righteous servant. Satan follows the words of the Almighty, the Merciful One, blessed be His name, every word that He said. He didn't deviate from it, some rebellious angel. And after chapter 2 in Job, we're not going to hear about Satan anymore because he's not the important thing here. It's going to be about Job. And Job does a wonderful thing. He at first goes through what every one of you goes through. Every one of us is tempted. Every one of us wants to turn our back on God. We question, don't we? And he did, and he turned his back on God in a big way. He said, oh my God, if you read chapter 3, he screams out to God, I don't want it, I don't need it, I wish I had never been born, I wish I was dead in the womb. Who needs this? You know something? You're Job. And you are, all of us, we're all Job, that's us. All of us go through that trial and tribulation with our relationship with God. Like you did with your parents and your husband. That's why the relationship that we have with God metaphorically is called the husband and the father. It's the same struggle. But your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Almighty can bring life into you. And indeed, that's what happens to Job. He struggles and struggles and struggles throughout that book. And at the end of the book, the Almighty says, You have spoken well. You are truly my righteous servant. He made it. In Christian theology, that was impossible because there was no Jesus there. Not once. You have to be very smart to be a Christian to work out the serious problems this is going to create. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, the Almighty is angry at the Jewish people. And he therefore instigates David or opens up a world to David to do something that the Almighty does not want us to do and that is take a direct census of the Jewish people. We don't count Jews. I'm not going to get into how and why and so on, but we don't count Jews. If you want to ask after it, I'll explain it to you. We do not count Jews. Indeed, in Scripture, in the, in the Pentateuch, in the Chumash, when indeed the count of the Jewish people did take place, we gave, gave half a shekel, we gave money, and the money was counted, not the people. It's a dangerous thing. Even today, those Jews who Fear God, we don't count. We don't walk around like this. One, two, three, four. We have other ways of counting. We don't do it by counting people. We know of a verse, different verses that have a certain number in it, and we base ten, and we simply count that way. Hoshia, many different ways. So the Bible says, because of sin, the Almighty now opens up to, to Daniel, to David, King David, to count the number of the Jewish people, which should not have been done, which will cause a plague amongst the Jews. Take a look at Second Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, under, was it God or Satan? And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go, number Israel and Judah. But one second, we have an apparent contradiction here. Because if you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, we're told the same story, but look carefully. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David 
to number Israel. One second, this seems like an apparent contradiction. Was it God or was it Satan? In Christian terms, this is a very serious problem. If you have a Christian Bible that has a commentary, there's going to be a lot of commentary here. Because is Satan the arm of God? Is Satan doing the will of God? Is he providing? Or is he an enemy of God? It's a very serious Who was it? God or Satan? They're exactly diabolically the opposite. And Judaism is not a contradiction at all. It was God who willed it and Satan who performed it. Man can choose good. Man can choose a relationship with God. And indeed, Scripture tells us that at the end of days, the Jewish people will will be called righteous. And the question is, why? Why would they be called righteous? By what means? Take a look at the bottom of the page, in whose merit will Israel be saved? In Isaiah 59, verse 20, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and to them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Scripture tells us and reveals that in the final days, the Messiah will return to those Jews who turn to God, who open their heart to the Almighty, to those Jews who repent and turn back to God by their own doing. But in Christian theology, and particularly for Paul, and when I say particularly for Paul, that's so important here, because you have to remember, the Gospels are basically not theological works. There's not a whole lot of theology in the first four books of the New Testament. It's basically what the four Gospels narration of the life of Jesus. Writing for different audiences, but not a whole lot of theology. The chief theologian is Paul. Paul's writings are very large in the New Testament. If we remove the Gospels from the New Testament, uh, Paul's writings, his 13 letters, will make up about three-quarters of the Christian scriptures. And his most important work, the centerpiece of his theological teachings that the church is based on till this day is the blueprint for Christian theology, is the book of Romans. And Paul has a very serious problem. How is it that the Messiah can come to those Jews who repent of Jacob? What do you mean they're repenting? How are they repenting? Repenting? I thought it's the blood of Jesus. No. And that's why if you had Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20 opened, it will tell you in your footnote, this verse is quoting, or is being quoted in the book of Romans chapter 11, verse 26. But look carefully at what Paul does to Romans chapter 11, verse 26, what he does there. And so Israel shall be saved, even as it's written, they shall come out of Zion and deliver he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. But that's not what it says. What it actually says is he's going to come to those who turn away. He's not going to be the one to turn it away. The most prominent verse in the Jewish scriptures that Christians use to point out a Satan personified. As a matter of fact, the King James translates the word here, which we'll see in a moment, as Lucifer. Look at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. Christians will say to you that this verse is about Satan. Read it in context. It's speaking about 
Nebuchadnezzar, it's speaking about the king of Babylon. The King James actually, instead of morning star, used the term Lucifer. By the way, do you know how many times the name Lucifer, which is Christian, the Christian name for Satan, appears in the New Testament? Does anyone know? Zero. It never even appears once. Open up a concordance and look up the word Lucifer and you'll only find it here. You'll never find it anywhere quoted because Lucifer is a post-canon name. It comes after the New Testament, the name Lucifer. But this verse is not speaking about Satan. It's speaking about Nebuchadnezzar. And it actually, reading it in context, creates an enormous problem for both Christians and those who deny the divinity and the single authorship of the book of Isaiah. You know, people who deny the single authorship of the book of Isaiah, it's because of what it says in Isaiah 45, verse 1. It states there, that indeed Cyrus is God's anointed and he's the one who's going to give permission to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, the city. And it says that Cyrus is God's Messiah. That creates a serious problem for those who don't believe in the Bible because Isaiah lived two centuries, more than two centuries before he could have ever known about Cyrus. So if Isaiah in 722, according to secular chronology, or thereabout, there's a disagreement, wrote about Cyrus, then obviously God was speaking to him. So an idea of a Deutero-Isaiah had to come up. The idea that there was a first Isaiah that wrote 1 through 39, and a second Isaiah that wrote from 40 to 66. Then we have even a third Isaiah, and so on and forth, so on. It goes even further. But indeed, if we look in the part that you agree is 722 or 32 BCE Isaiah, here he is in chapter 14, speaking about the king of Babylon. I always found it odd that they refer to this as Lucifer. Lucifer actually was the name of the planet Venus. It was the morning star. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar thought he was. That's the, that's the planet that can be seen in the morning right before the sun comes up over the horizon. Nebuchadnezzar controlled the entire world. He was the only superpower then. And he thought so much of himself. He's that morning star. He's that Lucifer, lucid, light. He thought he was the big light, but he was going to be destroyed as Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 12, and 29, verse 10 tells us. What's even more remarkable about this verse is here you have Isaiah 14:12, which is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and his downfall, although he thought he was so great. But this person is referred to as the morning star in Isaiah 14 verse 12. What's fascinating is in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, chapter 22 verse 16, we see there that the New Testament refers to Jesus as the morning star. Well, which is it? Take a look at this. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Well, how could Satan be the morning star and Jesus be the morning star at the very same time? Very interestingly, by the way, this is a little point in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 9. It tells us, you know, just a moment ago I talked about how the Jews will find their own salvation. It gives us the details in Isaiah 27, verse 9. Scripture tells us that indeed, how will Jacob's sins be paid in full to those who destroy the idols, the asherim, those trees that were worshipped, the altars and the chalk. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven, and this will be the full price of pardoning his sin when he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones when asherim and incense altars will not stand. 
That's how we'll be saved. According to Christian theology, the way any Jew will be saved at the end of days is by accepting Jesus. There it says, no, well, which is it? You can't have both. The idea of Satan, of course, is going to have dire consequences for the Jews. And I mentioned that earlier. When you see Jewish people have a revulsion or a certain nervousness, when they hear Satan mentioned, there is a reason for this. We are a walking history, every Jew is. When you see a Jew, it's like a history book walking. We are the culmination of what has been wrought to us over the centuries. And Satan is going to play a very important role with the Jews because the Jews are going to become the epitome, the picture of Satan. Indeed, in John chapter 8, 44, it tells us, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. Now, what does that mean when Christians think that the Jewish people are saying, what is this whole idea of the devil, the Jews and the devil? You need to understand this. If, if Christians heard about, let's say, this tribe in the middle of Africa, somewhere in the Congo jungle there somewhere, who, let's say, were undiscovered. I mean, there were certain tribes in the last few centuries so what happens when we find a tribe that simply have never met a white person, never heard of a Christian, never heard anything? Would Christians be angry at them for not believing Jesus? No. They never heard. But if they were heard and they were explained, they would certainly believe. You see, but the devil is different. Satan is different. And that is, Satan knows the truth, but rejects him anyway. And that's the Jew. And it comes up over and over and over again. We see it in the New Testament, it's not just the ugliness that the Jews killed Jesus. It's not the ugliness of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. Even, you know, you have the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus Christ and his own prophets. Jews killed Jesus. No, that's not it. The most lethal verses in the New Testament are those verses that indicate that the Jews rejected Jesus, even though they knew he was anyway. You see, in Matthew 28, after the two women leave the tomb, meeting the angel who's sitting on the stone, and tell them that Jesus already rose and he went to Galilee, and there you will see him, go and tell the disciples. According to Matthew, there were guards placed at the tomb to prevent anyone from saying that Jesus' body was stolen. He knew the Jews would lower themselves to that point. Many people say that John is the most anti-Semitic of all the Gospels. I say, no, it was Matthew. There's nothing like a self-hating Jew. In other Gospels, by the way, this story is impossible. In John's Gospel, it would be impossible to have any guards at the door because according to John, Mary leaves an empty tomb and concludes that the body was stolen. The body was stolen. You can't have any guards there because if there were guards there, the guards would tell you that Jesus rose. So the guards are simply absent in, in John's story because it simply won't work with his story. But in Matthew, we have guards there. And we're told in Matthew that after the guards come to the Jews, come to the priest, come to the Pharisees, to the priests, and tell them that indeed what happened, their promise says, don't worry, just don't say anything, here's some money, shut up, keep it to yourself. And if you get in Chosei, you fell asleep, whatever, you weren't aware of what happened, and don't worry, we'll cover you with Pontius Pilate, we'll cover you with the Romans. Why would they say that the guards told him that Jesus rose? Why then would the guards be paid to shut up? The priest should have said, oh, you did rise? Okay, we'll become Christians. But no, you're the devil. See, the devil knows the truth, but rejects him anyway. 
If you study criminology, you will know. The first thing you will be taught on day one is that in order for a criminal to perpetrate a crime against the victim, he has to dehumanize the victim in his eyes. That was Stryker's job. And as I told the young man here during the lecture a while back, I said to him, the Holocaust could never have happened in a Buddhist country, in a pagan country. It wouldn't have happened. Only a Christian country could have provided such a fire for the Jewish people. Schreiber was speaking to a choir when he wrote. And we see this happening throughout history, and we see it even happening today in the Messianic movement, the arm of the church. When the church said that the Jews would steal the host, that they would insult it by piercing it, by stabbing it, what does this mean? Insulting the host doesn't mean saying that the chant was lousy. Insulting the host means something else. Insulting the host means that particularly in Catholicism, where the Eucharist is given, where the wafer is given, Christian Catholics, as opposed to Protestants, believe that wafer actually, when it's blessed by the priest, becomes the actual body of Jesus. That belief in transubstantiation is not held to, it's not believed by Protestants. They believe it's only a symbol, but it's not the real body of Christ. Catholics also believe that the wine is literally becomes the... That's why only a priest, you know, could give Mass. No one else can because he becomes the... He, the church is the body of Christ and he blesses it and it becomes that. So they believe that the Jews would go into a church at night and they would steal these wafers. They would take them home and they'd come together and take out knives and stakes and they would stab them. And they believe, by the way, that blood would shoot out of the wafer. Now, let's take this to its full logical conclusion. In order for you to believe that, you would therefore have to believe that the Jews thought that this saltine cracker, whatever it is they give out over there, is actually Jesus. We actually believe in this, but we want to kill Jesus again and again and again. See, if you believe the wafer is meaningless, it's nothing, it's just a thing of flour and water, whatever it is, so you're not going to go stab it because it's stupid it doesn't mean anything I'm not going to stab something that doesn't mean anything in order for you just please take this to its full logical conclusion if we take this to its complete logical conclusion we would therefore have to believe that the Jews really do believe in Jesus and do believe that that church is the church of God and it's the only road to salvation there is no there is nothing outside of that cathedral and therefore would take that wafer which the Jews knew was Jesus and stab it therefore have to believe the Jews are demonic. You understand what I'm saying? It's not simply that we believe the Jews don't believe. It's more than that. We believe the Jews do believe deep down, but they reject him anyway. You know, when, when they said that the Jews use the blood of Christian boys for their masses. Again, we have this again, this idea of a crucifixion that takes place in every generation. The Jews are still evil. When Matthew quotes the Jews saying, we take this upon ourselves and our children. Boy, did they. Because they stole, a, they kidnapped a little Christian boy before Passover. And they would kill him and take the blood and they'd put it in, mix it in with the monsters. Of course, Judaism is the only religion that prohibits the eating of blood under any circumstances. I mean, the, you know, how illogical this is. You know? We poison the wells that we drink from. I mean, just, it's not important whether it's lies. Almost the bigger the lie is, the more they'll believe it. 
So when they kill that Christian boy, remember this Christian boy becomes the body of Christ. He's innocent. You understand the personification here, the picture here, the metaphor here. It is so powerful. And they keep killing a Christian every Passover just like they did to Jesus. Do you understand? Every Jew in America has to walk over to a police officer and thank you very much. And it continues today, this persona of the Jews. They know the truth, but reject Jesus anyway, and it goes on until today, and we find it in the Hebrew Christian world today. When they say that the Jews took out Isaiah 53 from the Haftorah, what does that mean? Think. The Jews do not want Isaiah 53 and Haftorah. They'll say, here's the big proof. It's not there. And it isn't. It ends with Isaiah, the beginning of Isaiah 2, and goes in Isaiah 54. But we don't have Isaiah 53 there. The Jews took it out because they don't want you to believe in Jesus. Take that to its full logical conclusion. Therefore, we have to believe that the Jews know that Isaiah 53 is speaking about Jesus. We don't want our nation to believe in Jesus. So we take out Isaiah 53 so they won't believe in Jesus. You have to be the devil to do that. It's not just the Jews have money. You understand what I'm saying here? It's not that the Jews are clannish. It's not that we have big nose or whatever it is that we have. No, that's nothing. It's you're the devil. The devil I can kill. Sad. These Europeans would have been terrific people, I'm sure. Luther would have been a wonderful guy had it not been for the Christianity that points in his heart and soul. It's a shame. People say to me, but a real Christian loves the Jewish people. I know the Christians in here are thinking that. It's not true. If you happen to be a Christian and you do really have an affection for the Jews, you don't do it because you're a Christian. You do it in, in spite of the fact that you're a Christian. Because the one thing all the Christians that have burned and hanged and slaughtered the Jews have in common is they were fundamentalist Christians. That's the only thing you can string them together with, with whether they were Protestant or Catholic. It's the only thing they had in common. Nothing else. They lived not in the same country. They didn't look the same. They didn't sound the same. The only common denominator is they were fundamentalist evangelical born-again Christians. It's the only thing we can draw them together. And it was because of their Christianity that they killed the Jewish people. They slaughtered us. And why? These were good people. Make no mistake about it. But it was the Christianity that poisoned their hearts and souls. And if you like the Jews, it's only because you're a good American. And Americans tend to like Jews. Sort of. <laughs> I mean, the idea, think about this again. That's why you can have Holocaust revisionism. How does somebody say the Holocaust never happened? Forget about the absurdity of that statement. But in order to believe the Holocaust never happened, it would require a mass conspiracy of the Jewish people. Forget about all the Christians, I mean, excuse me, all the Nazis that said this afterwards and interviewed and so on and Nuremberg trials and so on and so forth forget all what the, all the American allies and, and Russian soldiers saw when they opened the camps up forget all about that but in order for this to be true the Jews would have to conspire and say and invent the Holocaust in order to gain sympathy in the ears and hearts of the world so they can have the state of Israel that's what we would have to believe by the way indeed in every lie there is a little truth that little truth is that as a result of the Holocaust the Jewish people were able to have the state of Israel voted for in the UN. I don't have to tell you if such a vote was taken today, we wouldn't fare very well. But there was a little window open after the Holocaust where indeed the world felt sorry. When they say to you, do you know that the rabbis invented the oral law? 
And they say, what, is the, what do we have to believe? That the, the Jews had to come together from all over the world, from Yemen, wherever they were, and they have to invent this idea of an oral law, knowing full well that God never revealed any oral information at Sinai, only a written Torah. Forget about the absurdity of that statement. That's what you have to believe. Again, the Jews are capable of a mass conspiracy. The protocols of the elders of Zion. That's what it is. It was written as a forgery. That the Jews, every 100 years, the Jews come together and they plot out the history of the world for the next 100 years. By the way, they're really rationalists because in order to believe, if you take God out of the picture, in order to believe all of history that's happened, the Jews would have had to make it happen. Or someone terrible did. It's often been said that the Bible was either written by God or an anti-Semite. <laughs> when you go to those of you here who witnessed the Passover Seder, a messianic Passover Seder, you'll be told there that the, that the you know why the Jews have three matzahs at the Seder time? Did you know why? They didn't teach you the doctor? They don't tell you nothing, huh? You know why the Jews have three matzahs? The real reason why the Jews have three matzahs are because they, because of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And they know why the matzahs have little holes in them. The Jews put those holes there because they knew it was about Jesus. I know why the middle matzah is broken, which represents the second person of the second person of the triune Godhead, because that is represents Jesus. He was broken. We wrap it in the white shmata in a way because Jesus also wrapped in the white shmata too. In order to believe this, you would therefore remember see what's being perpetrated here. In order to believe this. You would therefore have to conclude that the Jews really believe in Jesus. We've set up all these beliefs in our Seder, and then we reject Jesus anyway. You're the devil. Only the devil can do that. That's why when, when, a, when a parent asks a child to meet with me, to study the Torah with me, to study Scripture with me, and the kid goes back to his pastor, to his messianic rabbi, and ask him the one thing the rabbi will tell him there, this messianic rabbi, is this man's Rabbi Singer. He's the devil. And those of you who belong to Baruch Hashem know that that's what was said about me. I take it as a very, very big compliment. <laughs> you know, when my lecturing really began in here in the Metroplex in the Dallas area. I, it was the first lecture, I think, was in Plano. And I told you about this phone call I received from mother, hysterically crying. She just found a New Testament between her daughter's box spring and mattress. Remember her? And it was a terrible confrontation that followed. She, she said to me, I remember, if my daughter came home pregnant, high on drugs, there are things in life that could have prepared me. Nothing could have prepared me for this one. So I explained to her, in order for me to help your daughter, I would need to meet with her. And the meeting was set up in Great Neck, New York. It's a very fancy, schmancy, fancy place there. I'm from Brooklyn, so when I went to Great Neck, I got very excited. It's huge and beautiful. I mean, it's just very nice. And I met with the girl, and right away she tells me about her beliefs in Jesus. I mean, how, you know, she starts telling me she went to Boston University and her roommate was a born-again Christian. <laughs> she had the little Jewish star on maybe her name. It's funny, her name was Elizabeth. She thought it was her name. And this roommate gives her a small New Testament as a gift. Just the New Testament. Just a small New Testament. No Jewish scriptures in it. 
And she said, look, I'm stuck with this girl the whole semester. She wanted to be cordial. She really didn't want to take it. But she wanted to be cordial because this girl, she stuck with her the semester, maybe the whole year. So she took it and put it aside. But a few weeks later, she's feeling a little down, a little depressed. And she decides to open it and to read it. And she said, as she was reading this New Testament for the first time, she suddenly came upon a verse, she said, that was so beautiful, that was so spiritual, that she knew that this New Testament had to be the living Word of God. I was a little curious. I thought I'd read through it a few times. I asked her, what did you read that was so beautiful, that was so spiritual? That was a... She said, Rabbi, would you pass me the Bible? And I passed her a King James Bible right across the kitchen table. And she took it from me, and she turned a few pages, and she begins to read to me this verse in the New Testament. But she never read anything like this in her life. It goes like this. You shall love the Lord your God <laughs> with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? Is there anything true in the New Testament? Yes. But anything true in the New Testament isn't new. Anything new in the New Testament isn't true. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you. I, um, at this point in the lecture, I'm going to take your questions, and I want to encourage Christians and Jews to ask questions. How does the Messianic movement use question is, how does the Messianic movement use Isaiah 53 for their purpose of converting Jews to Christianity? The answer is that Isaiah 53 predated a Messianic modern movement. You know, sometimes you hear Messianic saying that we're just a continuation of the first Hebrew Christians, the first believe, Jewish believers in Jesus, but they're not it's absurd to say that because there is no theological difference between the Messianic movement and modern Christian denominations at all. They don't keep the Torah just like the Christians, Gentile Christians do not keep the Torah, or Jews who are in mainline evangelical denominations. But one might say that a person like James kept kosher. Peter kept kosher. One might say that. So they have nothing to do with those first Christians that pre-Easter Jesus. No. But how did, this, how did they use Isaiah 3? Just like the church did, and insisted that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is speaking about Jesus and it describes how he suffers. And he suffers as a result of the iniquity. And he is the one. He's the only one. And of course, what happens is these Christians fail to read the context. Now, I, one little warning here, and I try so often to be sensitive, you know, to the Christian world with you. And, and what I'm about to say is really meant more for the Jewish people here rather than the Christians or former Christians who are now embraced the Jewish faith. And that is that most Christian scholars do not agree with this. Most Christian scholarship will tell you if you open up a New English Bible or a Harper's, it makes no difference, Bible commentary or so on, they'll tell you that Isaiah 53 is correctly speaking about Israel. But if you only read Isaiah 53 and all you have is a Christian translation, so there's no question you're going to say it's speaking about Jesus. And especially if you have brought up in a Christian country. A Jew who comes from an Indian country or some other country where they don't have a, a Christian dominant culture, they probably won't conclude that. 
And that's why I beg people. That's why Jews who, you know, when I see Jews who've gone to yeshiva, who studied the prophets, who read the beautiful survey, you know, they say, just as a small point, they say, Isaiah is reading the Torah. Ha ha! You know? Like the whole Isaiah is in the Torah, just this chapter. Yes, and is Isaiah 3 in the Torah? No. How about Isaiah 13? Also not. Isaiah 20, what are we hiding there? They don't think for a moment. Just think, think, think. And why is those chapters from Isaiah 40 read when they are in those seven weeks from Tishabab to, to Rosh Hashanah, the Shiva, the Nacham, to the seven weeks of comforting? Because it's telling us about how God will comfort us. Isaiah 3 is about the Gentile reaction because the kings at the end of days are going to go, <gasps> who would have believed such a thing? Who would have believed such a They can't believe what they're seeing. It's like nothing they've ever heard. Nothing's been told to them. What they're seeing is a complete contradiction to this. And they ask the question, who would have believed this report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? They say it about the nation of Israel. Back to the topic of the lecture, uh, was not saying what the differences in is in Judaism and when you say Judaism we're based on the Bible we're talking about scripture here you know it's important for you to remember that I know your rabbi has an opinion and I know your pastor has an opinion but you need to ask yourself the question what's God's opinion that's what we're doing here we're saying what does the Bible say that's the real question in Judaism, God created Satan as an evil angel to seduce you away from relationship with him. If you conquer him, as the Bible says that you can, you have indeed a place in the world to come. You indeed have a relationship with God. Judaism teaches that you can't have a relationship that you haven't chosen. If I say to you, I put a gun to your head, you know, love me or I'll kill you, so that if you say I love you, you don't really have a relationship with me. But where does Christianity's idea of Satan come from? The answer is Persian dualism. Zoroastrianism, the notion that there is a, a power of darkness and a power of light in the world. And man can never achieve what God's perfection is. God never created us that way. He created us perfectly human. That's what he did, you see. Um, but understand that Christianity will have to solve this problem that man is here and he is dirty and he's defiled and he's incapable of achieving a relationship with God based on his own you know on his own works that he does as a Christian term there even though many people have in the Jewish scriptures many people in the Jewish scriptures the Bible says were righteous doesn't it? How did Asa, Hezekiah, all these people said they're right, colleague, righteous, the Bible says it how? Very big problem never wants to say they believed in Jesus but you see, if you have a world separated by here is darkness, here is life, you know, then you have to have a bridge, and bri Jesus is that bridge. He's the go-between. He's the intercessor between the filth of man and the perfection of God. He can be the only bridge to your salvation. And that's why I said to you that it's a shame because the early church, a very early church, didn't have a notion of this. A very primitive Christianity, the pre-Easter Jesus, so to speak, doesn't have this idea. Jesus is a, an itinerant preacher, nothing more.
Yes. It's one of the terms that could be used, yes. Yes. Did you have... Well, let me explain this to you. Some people are, like Satan, they are surprised that there is a concept of hell in Judaism. And they're... Their, their first response to hearing such a thing, I was lecturing in Fort Lauderdale and a young fellow asked me this question, you know, about heaven and hell. He was very surprised. Are Jews have an afterlife? Well, what's this all about? This world is only a corridor to prose door to the world to come. But even though, just like Satan, we both use the term Satan, we spell the word Satan the same way, it sure sounds the same, we mean two entirely different things. Christianity used the term hell, the Jewish people use the term hell, we don't mean the same thing. For Christianity, it's an eternal damnation. It's the lake of fire that's described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. But that's not the case. There are a few people who can totally rebel against God that can lose their place in the world to come entirely. But for most people who die without repentance, people usually will repent. That's why people get sick before they die. Why don't people just drop dead on the spot? There are a number of reasons for this. One reason is that the person could prepare themselves, could look back and do in, take inventory. It also is a blessing to the family. This way it gives them time to come to terms with it. But the person has to think and say, oh, look what's happened. This is a very big favor, in a sense, that's been given to me. We don't sometimes see it that way. That's what it is. That means when someone, God forbid, should not happen to you, but if, if God forbid someone is told they have cancer that's inoperable and metastasized to the liver and to the pain and so on, it's inoperable. So this is a tremendous opportunity. Those six months, nine, year, nine months a year is an opportunity to think and to think, what is my life? What's the purpose of it? And to repent to repent but what happens if someone doesn't repent right what happens if someone is not aware of this so God forbid it happens suddenly it happens in a car accident where there's nothing that could prepare them for such an event so in that case a person's iniquity could be cleansed of them after they die for a period of up to 11 months and that's why when we say Kaddish when people say Kaddish Mourner's Kaddish for the dead, it's said for up to 11 months. The Bible speaks of this, but as in all afterlife, it's spoken about in a, in a short, truncated way. You'll find this in the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, verse 14, where it says that if someone dies with iniquity, then their iniquity will be cleansed after. And what happens is that the child says, Kaddish, open up a sitter that has an English translation. If you can't read the Aramaic, is not a word in Kaddish about death, nothing. It is Kadal Oh, great and mighty is the Almighty. The delicious words, but it nothing to do with death. Because you have to understand how could it be that a child could bring, and this is what it does. When a child says Kaddish for a parent, it literally gives that, that parent an alias neshama. Literally, it elevates the soul of the departed. But hold on, that sounds a little vicarious to me. Why should a child or a child does in this world help someone else who has nothing to do with it, is already dead? Why should you saying Kaddish in a synagogue affect someone who's already departed? I'll tell you the reason. Because if you leave this room and tonight you go home and you meet someone there and you teach them about God, imagine you'll tell, tell somebody, you know, on Shabbos, remember Shabbos, it's the, what we think about, we contemplate the creation of, man, of mankind, the world. 
God wants to imagine you tell someone you'll convince someone tonight to put on tefillin imagine you'll do such a thing put on phylacteries the mitzvah and Torah right so every time that that person will put on tefillin you will get reward for it it's unbelievable it's like getting annuities that's what it is you get there's a few people going there he goes with the money the whole thing now right? you get a reward for that do you teach someone righteousness and you teach them mitzvah teach them don't eat that pork anymore so the next time that person withholds it and gets a kosher piece of empire chicken instead of the the Purdue should know that you get reward for it and what was the job of a mother and a father to teach their children Shema B'ni Musar Avicha V'alti Tosh Torah don't forget the Torah of your mother don't forget the warnings of your father. Your father taught you, put you on his little knee and taught you about God. So you do a mitzvah, your father gets a reward. And the same thing in the world to come. That's what happens. So when we say Kaddish for our parents, your parents are getting annuities from these holy, holy, noble words. And that's why the Aliyah's Neshama, this elevation of the soul in the next world, takes place, but we only need it for 11 months. Because no longer will a normal person go there. The Talmud in, in Sanhedrin the last section talks about some people who have lost their place in the world to come entirely because they were rebellious and thoroughly evil and now that they do evil they caused others to do evil and they were fully aware of what they had done the question is do the southern Baptists about 15 million of them in the United States do they use the same techniques to evangelize the Jews that, for instance, the Assemblies of God would. Yes, in terms of the scripture. And you can say, don't be surprised by the Southern Baptists because they emerged out of a crucible of intolerance. You need to understand that. Why is there such a thing called Southern? What's with Southern? These are Baptists with a suntan. What does this mean? <laughs> what does this mean, Southern Baptists? How did they come? How did such a thing come about? Wait, it doesn't say in Matthew 28 18, go with all nations and make them Southern Baptists. It doesn't say such a thing there. <laughs> so how does, such a, well, how does the Southern Baptists break away from the Baptists? How does such a thing happen? And then it's all based, the whole basis of their existence is one of intolerance. There are a number of reasons why the Southern Baptists broke away. The, Southern ba- the SBC, the Southern Baptist Conference, broke away from what was called the, the, the triennial the, 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 uh, conference. It took place in, in 1843 in Augusta, Georgia. That was the first Southern Baptist Convention. What was the problem? Why did they break away? The answer is very simple. They wanted to own slaves. That's the reason. There are other financial reasons, by the way. But the major reason was that no, the Baptists would not allow any family member of someone who was a slave owner to be a missionary. You couldn't. And when you say family, that was big back then. It's not so big now, because now you're talking about three people and a dog. But it used to be a whole family. <laughs> people lived on a farm. They raised. They all worked together. And you see, having a bigger family was an economic advantage. Today, it's a disadvantage. So the family member of a, southern, of, of, a, of, a, of a slave owner could, could not be a missionary in the Baptist church. And they want their blacks to do what they want. They want to rip apart their families. They wanted to continue this iniquity. So what do they do? They say, ah, no problem. We want to be slave owners. So what are we going to do? We'll form our own convention. That's what happened in Augusta. This is the whole foundation of how they break away is based on intolerance. 
And that intolerance continues. That's the makeup of it. By the way, here's, this is not, this is nothing. But nothing, that iniquity is nothing compared to the later iniquity. And that's the iniquity in 1995. Most of you don't know this. They eventually will apologize. Next year, no. 150 years later, it took them to figure out that this was a mistake. That's right. So in 1995, it's unbelievable. So in 1995, at the SBC convention, they officially apologized to the to African Americans. I guess they're going to come to me in 150 years and, you know. <laughs> they won't, because the real Messiah is going to be here. They're going to apologize when it comes and when it rains and when it happens. It could be a marvelous day. But you understand what I'm saying to you? The whole... It's not that other people don't make mistakes and there are no racists or whatever. No, there are. But I'm saying the core foundation of how the Southern Baptist, the whole movement comes into being is from intolerance and hate. So understandably, you're going to have this. That's the purpose of outreach Judaism. Why are we here in Dallas, Texas? Why? Taxes are lower. Phone calls are cheaper now. Because <laughs> this is the borough park of the fundamentalist Christian world. You understand? Yes. Nowhere in the Bible does God ever come to someone, give him instruction of what he wants the person to perform. And that person goes off and does it. And then it's, whoops, I did the wrong thing. I didn't understand what you told me. Right? I don't think there's anywhere in the Bible does it. Well, why do we have the Bible itself be open to so much interpretation? Why isn't the Word of God spoken so clearly to us that there's, there's no mistake to be made? First of all, it must be said that Scripture does tell us that the Almighty did not speak to Jacob in a place of darkness, but in light. Isaiah 45, verse 19. Isaiah 45, verse 19. No secrets. Deuteronomy 29, the very last verse. The secret things belong to the Lord, but that which has been revealed belongs to us and to our children forever, that we may keep all the words of this law. It's all clear. How, why would God keep something secret that was necessary for salvation? Now, people say to me, but Rabbi Singer, you can prove anything from the Bible. That's what they say to me. You can prove, hey, you ever hear such a thing? Anybody could take anything out of context and prove anything from the Bible. It's not true. If you're honest with Scripture, and if you read the verse clearly what it says, and read it just the, sim- the simple, immediate context, most of it is very clear. There are verses, like in the book of Psalms, Perhaps that there is some quality of a lack of specificity there. So therefore we have a rule of hermeneutics that scripture interprets scripture. But most of the Bible when it says six days you shall work on the seventh day, there's no question what that means. And everybody knows that that seventh day is Saturday. No Christian will say to you the seventh day is Sunday and say no. But Jesus is the new Sabbath, Hebrews 4, and therefore we keep it on Sunday because that's resurrection day. But they're not disagreeing with what the Jews are saying, that the Sabbath is the verse I was talking about. But the Bible says it's forever and ever. You see what I'm saying? A person has to say, I'm willing to study truth. And whatever the truth is, no matter how complicated it's going to make my life, I am willing to accept it. But I'll tell you another thing. Christians are terrified, too. And don't be fooled. I mean, really, I feel sorry for them. And I, I don't mean this in any cute way. I mean this genuinely. They're afraid of going to hell. They really are. Don't fool yourself. I listen so carefully to them. They're shaking from this. And they're terrified that if they question Jesus, they're going to go to hell. They're going to be lost. And Hebrews 6 says that you can't crucify Jesus twice. Now, there's a whole commentary 
on Hebrews 6 and why evangelicals believe that if you believe Jesus but come back that you still can be saved there is but the natural reading of those texts is you read it tonight right in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 6 if you can stay at the Ramadi you slip out the night tables right there so it says there that you can't do it twice if you leave Jesus you can't come back again and they are afraid of going to hell don't fool yourself they're terrified of this that's why I say to them remember our axioms just remember we, want, we don't know maybe today will be the last day we don't know so what we want to do is we want to understand what is the given what's the postulate what's given here right it's like um, right when I studied geometry so when I studied geometry I don't know how it is today when I was in 10th grade they used to have the first page was axioms am I right doc yes. postulates all these things that you have to if you don't accept this you can close the book and go home and, get, and fail but if you do, you have to accept them. The whole thing, the sum total of all, you know, equal to the, the shortest distance between two points, straight line. You have to accept that. If you don't accept that as a premise, then you can't move on. But if you accept those postulates, those axioms, then you can move on. And then you have your theorems. If two sides of a triangle are equal, then the opposite angles are equal as well. If A squared plus, if a squared plus B squared has to equal C squared. And they'll prove it to you by the series of using the postulates that have already been given. This too has a postulate. And the postulate is the Jewish scriptures have to be true. That we all agree on. The question is the Christian Bible. Start with Genesis. Don't start with Matthew. That's a disaster. And if it takes a view, let it go. If it takes a revenue, let it go there too. But at least start with Genesis and move through. And then be, be ready for the consequences. Or be ready for the consequences. <laughs> yes, sir. One thing that's always bothered me Okay, as you said, Jesus is the only conduit, according to Christianity, uh, to salvation. So what does Christianity do with Moses, Abraham, the prophets, all the righteous people who lived before Jesus was crucified? No, a Christian would say to you, they all spoke of Jesus. Oh, sure, when Moses said, was it you know, even New Testament? Jesus quoted saying that didn't Moses speak of me? The old um, Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse 15, eighteen, verse fifteen. Behold, I will raise unto you a prophet like Moses. It was Jesus. The, you know what the Muslims say? It's Muhammad. You know what the, what the Muni say? You don't have to guess, right? Everyone just pours into whatever they want to. You simply pour into. It. Yeah, if you tell a Muslim, show a Muslim, they'll do it and get killed. But if you do it, if you. <laughs> Do it here. No Muslims here, are there? No, no. Okay. There's a Muslim. You're not a Muslim. I know that. So, I'll get killed here yet in a second. So, I once spoke at Queens College. Spoke at Queens College, and they gave the lecture um, confused texts and testimonies. So, everything was going good, you know. We're about to start. You know, we always start, you know, a little bit late. So, as we're about to start, and I'm being introduced, and I'm sitting on the side watching, suddenly these these, you know, Nation of Islam guys with the bow ties start walking into the room, maybe 20 of them. Mm. I thought, you know, I'm already confessing and, you know... <laughs> they loved the lecture. They loved it. They loved it. They worked out, you know, worked very nicely. But I thought, oh, this was it, you know. You know, I already saw the papers for the farm. It's all set up inside. Um... So they'll pour into it whoever they want it to believe. As the Muslims will pour into Muhammad, the Christians will point pour into a Jesus, and so on and so forth. You just believe what you want to believe. <laughs>